Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. I met my wife Alexis in the summer of 2004. She and her friend David had come over to my apartment in Atlanta to hang out with my roommate James. I had come home from visiting my family in Noonan, and there she was just sitting in my living room. James introduced us, and I remember that Alexis didn't even look at me. Now, I was very antisocial during that time, and even though Alexis was attractive, I decided to head back to my room to work on a paper for an English class that I'd been putting off. The paper was due the next day, so I was stressed, and I remember being annoyed by how loud they were being, but probably more so because they were having fun while I sat there alone in my room doing something I really didn't want to do. I remember making the decision to take out the garbage as to give myself a break, but probably more so to remind my roommate and his visitors of my presence, maybe do some glaring, and to possibly see if I could get Alexis to look at me. We did meet again a few weeks or so later. James and some of his friends were planning to go to the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, and then afterwards, go see the film Garden State. Usually a themed outing like this would be just the type of shit that would really get on my nerves. But I had never been to the botanical gardens, so I decided to go along. Alexis was among this group of friends going, and I ended up riding in her car. By the time we had gotten to the botanical gardens, they had sold their last tickets of the day. Some of the people we were with decided to sneak in. I didn't really want to do that, and neither did Alexis and my future dear friend Kelly Cooey so the three of us just sat outside the entrance talking. We became pals that day and started to hang out fairly often. Now, I was a pretty unhappy asshole at that time, and like I had done in many of my relationships before, I created unnecessary conflict that eventually pushed her away. We didn't speak for several months, but fortunately, through her kindness and my strengths as a sincere apologizer, we did eventually reconnect. When I received a notice that my entire apartment complex had been bought and that I had 30 days to move out, I somehow convinced Alexis, who at this point was just my friend that I occasionally made out with, to break her lease and rent a house with me. About a month into living with each other, we fell in love and became a couple. I just loved living with her, and if she would have me, I would be her roommate forever. We've been married for almost 15 years now, and like most marriages, we've had our difficult periods. But I do feel quite fortunate to have found her. So much that's good in my life is because of her, and it is a pretty good life that I have. Though oddly enough, I sometimes find it difficult to relate to art that expresses a similar sentiment. I have found that I'm usually more attracted to the works, especially those of a lyrical matter, that tend to be on the gloomier side. Though I will say that I heard the incomparable Color Me Bad's 1991 hit All For Love at a Lowe's the other day, and I gotta say, it was an enjoyable experience. I guess I believe that it's harder to write about joy and contentment in poignant ways without it entering into excessive sentimentality which doesn't always feel real to me. That's not to say that this can't be done. In fact, one particular recent record that greatly accomplishes this difficult task 
is Eric Slick's 2020 record, Wiseacre. Now, I first became aware of Slick through his association with a number of other acts that I really love, so it was natural that I would eventually check out his solo material and become a fan of his music. So when I saw the announcement in July of last year that he would soon be releasing a new album titled Wiseacre, I figured it would be a record for me. And when it was released, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Hello, everyone. <laughs> My name is Eric Slick, and uh, I wrote all the songs and played drums and other things on my record, Flyzaker. Born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, multi-instrumentalist Eric Slick would spend the entirety of his childhood there and would find it, especially during that particular time, to be an interesting experience. Well, growing up in Philadelphia back in the late 80s and early 90s is very different than growing up in Philadelphia now. Growing up there back then, uh, the city was extremely dangerous, but and, and my neighborhood was also very blue-collar. So Philadelphia was just sort of this weird melting pot of a lot of different kinds of people. And it also just felt like very uh, chaotic. Whereas now that everything has been, you know, sort of uh, gentrified and um, all the neighborhoods are now extremely expensive. And now it's, you know, like a borough of New York. Philadelphia is a very different place. But growing up, I mean, there weren't a ton of rock bands there was a lot of soul music which i love and there was a lot of uh live hip-hop like the roots um uh, but there wasn't a lot of rock music so my family was like a dyed in the wool classic rock family and so we were definitely outliers for sure you know in, in my second grade class in 1992 or three or you know uh they asked me what my favorite song of the year was. And I said, Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton. And the entire class looked at me like I was insane because the, the, the rest of the class, everyone said Gin and Juice by Snoop Dogg. And I was just this weird kid with like a mullet and a Carmen Sandiego sweatsuit, like a full on, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego sweatsuit? So uh, I was a weird kid to say the least. I also skipped first grade, which definitely did not make me popular with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um gr growing growing up in philly it, it was weird um but it was also amazing it is at an early age that slick becomes interested in music my earliest musical memory is when my parents bought me bongos uh for my third birthday 
and they would make me play along to records because I had obviously had this inclination towards playing drums. Whenever they put on records, I'd bang on my crib. So my early memories are like playing bongos along to Santana records and Guns N' Roses records. Now, Santana makes more sense than Guns N' Roses. Not a lot of percussion on Guns N' Roses material, but I just wanted to play. You know, everyone at my local school was like, eh, Eric's a little too young to play drum set, so maybe we can give him a violin. So they gave me a violin and I like studied a couple lessons at this local Presbyterian church in my neighborhood. And uh, I was like, I don't like the violin as much as I like drums. I mean, violin came into my life way later as an important thing. But at that time, I just wanted to play drums. They were trying to get me to do everything but play drum kit. A young kid on drums in the 90s, you know, in a tiny row home in Philadelphia. I don't think our neighbors would be too happy about that. Eventually... Slick's interest in music would lead to him exploring other instruments. So when I was in sixth grade, I got really sick. I was just having problems breathing and, and um, went to my doctor and I had like a chronic sinus infection. So I was on this nebulizer and I couldn't go to school for three weeks. And about that time, it got, so this was like around 1997, and they played the band Everclear a lot on the local rock radio station specifically the song santa monica my dad was a guitar collector and had a bunch of guitars sitting around the house so i was like i'm just going to teach myself santa monica i can ask my mom to print out the tabs for santa monica which is what she what she actually did she, she was at work and she printed them out brought them home played santa monica you know just that that dumb riff like down 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 no 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 over and over and over again and that was my intro to guitar. I figured out how to fret. And my dad would like show me how to fret stuff on guitar. And then about two weeks into being sick, we were driving around. And I can't remember why. We might have been going to like the pharmacy or something. And I heard a song on the radio. And I was like, oh, dad, that's the same chord as Santa Monica. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, that's the same chord. And he was like, what do you mean it's the same chord? I'm like, that's a G. And he was like, how do you know that that's a G? And so he kind of figured it out that I had perfect pitch, which was like super weird to, to figure out quickly. But he just, uh, just we just, by chance, I, I happened to say it out loud to get my gift and my curse. But yeah, um, so then he kind of took me home and he, he was like, hey, Eric, what's this chord? And you play a chord without me looking. And uh, I'd be like, oh, it's an A, it's a C sharp. And he was just like, that is that's crazy that you can do that. So from there, just kind of, I just started teaching myself guitar and, you know, um, picking things up by watching people. And then I was like, oh man, I could play bass too. Cause bass is just guitar with four strings. My dad had some basses lying around the house. And so we'd just play bass. And then when I was uh, a senior in high school, I was like, I want to play keys. So then I like, I'd be at my friend's parties and they'd all be like getting wasted. And I would just like, they had like a piano in the living room at the house and I would just like let them get wasted and I would just like practice <laughs> piano. Cause at the end of the day, like that's all I really wanted to do. I, you know, I, I like being social. I like talking to people, but like at that time I was still kind of awkward and still not good at making friends. So it was like, all right, well, I'm just going to hole up in, in this living room and play this Clavinova <laughs> over and over <laughs> over and over again. Specifically, remember, like, trying to figure out um, the Flaming Lips feeling yourself disintegrate on piano. 
you know, like I, you know, I, I definitely had some partying days, but it wasn't anything, you know, crazy. I mean, most mostly just drinking, but it, honestly, it just uh, it didn't really interest me to like sit around and and be stupid, you know, like. <laughs> You know, and, and maybe it was something about the Zappa upbringing too, where Zappa was extremely anti-drug and extremely like, uh, you know, uh, almost like a teetotaler. I just, I, I just was lucky to have influences early on that were like, you know, the only way you're going to get good is by working very hard. Um, and that is true. You know, all, all these other things got in the way of that. And my grandpa was sort of a shining example of that too, because he had totally squandered his talent because of drug use. And so I was like, well, you know, I'm quick. I got a quick brain and I don't want to do anything that, that is going to get in the way of that. So I wanted to be as reactive as possible. And so I eventually was just like, you know what? Fuck this party. I'm going to go play feeling yourself disintegrate on the piano for a couple hours. <laughs> Having initially been discouraged, Slick would eventually begin experimenting with songwriting. I had a teacher in Philadelphia who was extremely dis- disparaging, uh, which is weird because, like, if someone wants to write songs, you should encourage them to write songs. And it, it's just expression. It's not like there's anything else besides that going on, really. It's like you're expressing yourself in this very wonderful medium. So, like, you should encourage everybody to write songs. But this guy was just, like, hell-bent on making me feel like drummers don't write songs. I was At that time, I was predominantly a drummer, and he was not having it. He's like, drummers write crappy songs. They all, they're all proggy, and they're all weird, and nobody likes them. Uh, and that may be true, but I, I just started to, to, it started to get under my skin. And he also told me that I couldn't sing, which may all have also been true. You know, how would I ever know if I could do it if I didn't try? In my uh, early 20s, actually, like around 2008, 2009, I just started writing songs. And then uh, my best friend, this guy named Dominic Angelella, who's a wonderful musician, like, he was really encouraging. And I remember playing him a few of my songs and I was super nervous to play on my songs. And he was just like, these are great. Like we should write together. And so we started a band called Lithuania and that was the first real, like, I'm going to put out a couple songs. And then of course, like I was so nervous to even, you know, I, I didn't like grow up singing or, um, grow up writing songs. I mean, like it was all in my head, every, everything that I was singing, I'd sing by myself or, you know, I was very private about it. I'm still very private about it. But putting that first record out with Dom, um, I like, you know, distorted my voice and like ran it through like a Leslie effect and kept it very crazy. And it's like, it doesn't even sound like a voice. I was just so ashamed of what, <laughs> of what I was doing. But I was also deep down very excited to finally be writing songs. In 2010, Slick joins the Philadelphia-based rock band, Dr. Dog. Parlay on the crowd. Why? 
I was playing in Adrian Ballou's band with my sister, and it, it was sort of starting to run its course, and I was exhausted from touring. And I, honestly, I thought that I was not going to be a touring musician anymore. But I was friends with the Dr. Dog guys in Philly, and they, you know, honestly, like up until their record Fate, they were just like the local bar band. You know, like they played at the Kyber and they played at the Fire, which were two very small clubs in Philly. I was just a fan of what they were doing, and they knew I was a drummer, but I never really like played for them or anything. And uh, I ran into the keyboardist Zach on the street, and I told him that I wasn't really doing anything. And then a week later, I got a call from him, and their drummer had quit, and. Um, and he asked me if I wanted to, to play in the band. It was really that thoughtless. It wasn't like this overarching, amazing experience. It was literally like I just told him I'm not up to anything. And I should also note that it, as we were ending our conversation, I walked directly into a pole. Uh, so it was embarrassing as well. I don't even know why uh, they hired me, but they did. Yeah, that, that's how it came about. I mean, it was really just that simple. Those guys are such like classic songwriter types where like, you know, they're not very, they're not extremely precious. They just love the, the, um, the process of writing music. So being around them, it's kind of hard to not catch the bug because they're constantly writing and very prolific. And they talk about songwriting and what songwriting is with a deep respect and passion for the craft I, i'm and i'm also like a sponge so when i'm around them i would just pick up things that they were doing it is in 2014 that slick would begin work on his first solo record releasing the album palisades in april of 2017 so in 2011 i started doing transcendental meditation i do a mixture of like transcendental meditation and buddhist meditation now uh it's sort of evolved over time but when i first started learning how to do transcendental meditation that was a huge eye-opener into my creative life, and I felt like I could be creative again. And that, like, I could write or do collages or paint, and it was okay. And I didn't have to share it with everybody. It could just be something I enjoyed doing. And um, then when I moved to Asheville, North Carolina in 2014, I, I, it was my first time leaving Philly. And, you know, being in Philadelphia, like, and you grow up as a drummer there and you're in like 10 or 15 bands at a, any given moment, like everyone views you a certain way. And then, you know, they're just like, well, you play drums, you don't write songs. I couldn't really like reinvent myself in that town. So moving to Asheville, like I was able to completely forge a new identity as this person who is a multi-instrumentalist, but also a composer and, um, the meditation was a huge uh, catalyst for my first record. And I felt like that year was a really, really kind of a reset for, for me spiritually and for me as a creative. So started my first record in 2014. It just sat on the back burner for a really long time because Dr. Dog was getting active again. And also like, you know, I was still shy about getting things done and, wasn't necessarily confident about putting things out in the world. You know, Dr. Dog was like the, the way of expressing myself musically. And then 2016, like, I was just kind of sitting around. And I was like, I wonder if I should just like put out a song from those sessions. Like maybe I'll finish a song for my debut record and then I'll just put it out on the internet and see what happens. It isn't 
put it out and then like spin wrote about it the first week and I was just like what I like I, I was not expecting that I was just expecting like you know you know maybe like a friend would say like good job Eric <laughs> but it got some attention and um I talked with a couple of labels and then uh then it, there was like a mad dash to finish the record so I, I finished it up at the end of 2016 and then put it out in uh, 2017. In 2015, Slick would begin a relationship with a talented musician and songwriter, Natalie Prass, which would eventually lead to their marriage in 2019. at a Dr. Dog show in 2009 before I was in the band. They were playing in Nashville. I was rehearsing in Nashville with Adrian and my sister. And uh, Dr. Dog played on Valentine's Day and Natalie was there with her then uh, boyfriend, partner, uh, and a mutual friend from Philadelphia. And so we met and she, I think she thought I was an insane person because I was bouncing off the walls. And then we, you know, didn't keep in touch or didn't even see each other for years after that. And then um, she, she remembers meeting me. I, I kind of vaguely remember meeting her. And um, a couple years later, she was in a band opening for Dr. Dog, this band called Benny Erko and the Revealers. You know, we stayed in touch and uh, followed each other on various forms of social media. And then around 2015, it's when we started talking again. And we realized that there might've been a spark there. And, um, now here we are, <laughs> five years later. Slick begins composing the songs that would make up his sophomore record in early 2018. Inspired and encouraged by Prass, his songwriting would begin to stylistically differ from previous efforts. At the beginning of 2018, um, my friend reached out to me and was like, hey, if you're interested, there's this studio up in Woodstock that's just going to be free for the week. If you want to drive up, like we could you know, use it as like a writer's retreat. And uh, I went up there and the first song that I wrote was Nothing to Lose. And then I wrote a bunch of absolute crap for about a week, none of which got used. Natalie pulled me aside one time and was just like, you know, maybe not even one time, it's probably multiple times if I really think about it, but she was just like, you know, you have this really like ebullient, fun personality why is it that everything that you write is so brooding and kind of dark and grayscale aesthetically? And I was like, you know, I don't really know why, you know, I think it's just in my meditation practice, I'm getting all of this negativity out and then it's, you know, projecting itself onto the music. And that's just what I write. I'm not really thinking about it. 
she's like well you know as a songwriter it's like you need to be able to write songs for everyone you can't just write songs for yourself you also need to write things that not only uh reflect your personality but like you know you have to need to write in your vocal range and you need to like produce it in an interesting way for people to actually want to listen to your music and it just was like it was so obvious but i just didn't ever think about it that way I was like, well, I'm just going to create whatever I want to create, and then who cares? But like for her, she's been an artist much longer than I've been an artist, and she had so much valuable insight to be like, hey, you know, you need to think about everything. You need to think about the way it makes people feel, and you need to think about the packaging and like the aesthetic. Like it all matters, and you can't just like fart something out and put it out. I mean, it was hard to hear. I didn't want to hear it, but I knew that it was. But things that are hard to hear are often true. And so I took it seriously. And then over the course of 2018, I was trying to just uh, get better at writing songs. You know, how can I get how can I get more in touch with how I actually feel about things and also try to put something out in the world that reflects my personality and it's also cohesive. I was really trying hard to make something cohesive. I was also really into this record by Andy Schauf called The Party, which I just thought was like one of the most cohesive records I'd heard in a long time. And I, I almost couldn't believe it was a new album because of how much it was an album uh, front to back. And uh, I had read that Andy Schauf, in the process of making that record, wrote 100 songs in order to become a better songwriter. And I was like, well, that's a good idea. You know, maybe I should try to do that. So all throughout 2018 and 2019, I just sat and wrote and rewrote and rewrote and, you know, started to not necessarily take a perfectionist attitude towards it, but just started to take it much more seriously as a craft. And uh, I was really anxious to get better. Following a number of false starts, Slick begins working with producer Jeremy Ferguson. Based in Nashville, Tennessee, Ferguson has worked on a number of records, including those by Josh Rouse, Turbo Fruits, and Lamb Chop, among others. I was going to start just demoing songs out with Richard Swift up at his studio in Cottage Grove. We had been texting for a long time about making a record together, and uh, you know he had like done my T-shirts, and so I was just like, ah, man, you know, Swift and I are so, so similar as people, and uh, we were just you know constantly delaying plans and. He was like, just come up here and like we can just write the record here and then record it here. And like I'm actually glad that that didn't work out, but I'm also extremely sad that Swift passed away and that we yeah. never got to record together. And so I demoed more. I, I did demos at Space Bombs, which is the studio where Natalie works out of. And um, that generated some more material, like the song Over It from my record. And then... Uh, then I was going to work with Jonathan Rado from Foxygen because I was like, well, you know, Rado and I also have a similar aesthetic vision. And I did a couple songs with Rado and that was super fun, but like nothing was really bringing the material together. And so I hired a new manager, uh, Rusty. And Rusty was like, you know what, man, I think that you just need to like demo a couple songs in Nashville and, uh, find somebody that you like working with so that like you can go to the studio and you can be in the same town as the studio. So everyone had been telling me that I had to meet Jeremy Ferguson at battle tapes. And they were like, he, you and him are just going to, you're going to hit it off. And like, 
it's going to be great. And like the first time I met Jeremy, I had no idea what to think. We were kind of at a party and like it was all awkward and like I just wasn't sure what to think. But then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to book a couple days with Jeremy and see what happens. And like I had my friend from Philadelphia, Andy, come down and a couple guys here locally and we cut four songs in two days. And it was like the most incredible, idyllic album making experience like we just did four songs but i was like man we could just like we could just like keep on going if we booked more time and i I sent the songs back to my manager and he was like oh yeah this is it you have to make the full record with jeremy sessions for the album take place at ferguson's battle tape studio located in east nashville studio is uh it's just like a the world's best home studio i mean it's in his house and like he has a Spectrasonics board, which is the same mixing board that they used for like Imagine by John Lennon. So it's like the drums sound phenomenal through this board. And like he's just got one of every guitar pedal in there, you know, it's like the Noah's Ark, you know, like he's just got everything in the studio. But it all still feels really modest and it feels like you don't feel like you're stressed out or under pressure because you're in, you're in that home environment and a lot of my friends you know we do home recording and uh we're always looking for something that's just like a more established version of home recording because some commercial studios just feel very sterile but uh Jeremy Studio does not feel like that all the basic tracks are done live everything on the record is live and and not to a metronome i wanted the record to breathe I love making records to metronomes, but I also feel like they can be stress-inducing. And I also just love music that's not recorded to a metronome. And I think, you know, like Steely Dan Records being an example. Now, later on, Steely Dan Records were recorded to drum machines. But, like, the my favorite Steely Dan Records are the ones that are just teetering on, like, you know, like things are a little fucked up. Like even the album Asia, everyone calls it like the sonically perfect record, but mm-hmm. there's so many imperfections on that album. And so Asia was a really big influence on this record and just that era of studio recording in general. Getting a live band take and then, you know, finding finding cohesion in the overdubs. And in the end, they made a record. <laughs> Wiseacre opens with the track When It Comes Down To It, a tightly constructed piece of sunny mid-tempo pop. 
and though it expertly sets the stage for what's to come, as any great opener should, when it comes down to it, was not the original choice for the album's opening track. I thought Nothing to Lose was going to be the first song. And for the longest time, I was like, nope, I'm stubborn. Nothing to Lose is going to open the record. But when it comes down to it, it was a song that I wrote very quickly. I, I set a timer for myself. I read that Jeff Tweedy sets a timer for himself when he writes songs. So I set a timer for 30 minutes, and uh, it, it, the song just kind of happened. And I was psyched about it. And I put it aside and recorded a little demo. And um, I didn't realize what I was singing about when I wrote it because it happened so quickly. But then I, I, I sort of realized that it could end up actually being like the overture for the record, meaning like thematically the things that I'm saying are like, I, I'm offering myself up to, to a, another person for the first time, really. I've been in relationships before, but this is the first time where I'm actually, I am being myself 100% without having to try. And, and I'm also expressing that my needs are very simple. And so when it comes down to it, the chorus is me trying to say that like, hey, let's, well, you don't have to overthink who I am. Like I'm actually very simple. I have simple needs and um, they're they're much more, easy to understand than we're making them. So it became the MO for the record. It was the first song that we ended up recording, but uh, it wasn't until I started arranging the songs with the, the playlist that that ended up making sense as the first song. And, and it also makes sense for the stories, you know, like, again, I'm trying to create like a love story. And I never really tried to do that before. You know, like I said, um, everything that I wrote about prior to this was either about my pain or something ethereal or something that was more otherworldly. But like I had always looked at writing about love as like weak or something, which is totally not true. Yeah. Um, you know, vulnerability is like everything. And the more vulnerable you are, you know, I see why artists kind of cave into their sensitivity sometimes because like this is how we connect with other people being vulnerable is how we connect with other people so when it comes down to it is a much more of an appropriate mission statement for the album because it's about just being completely offering yourself to somebody and i sort of look at that song as like me introducing myself to natalie five years ago that song it's sort of like chill but it's also got this dreamy quality to it but it's also got like a funny harmonized butt rock guitar solo in it I wanted to keep elements of humor in the song, even though the, the, the big picture of the song is uh, serious. So that is just three guitars, I think. I wrote that guitar solo with Sean Thompson, who is the uh, guitarist on the whole album. And uh, Andy Molholt, who is one of my closest friends, uh, he... He was sort of my rock for this whole record because he's from Philadelphia as well. And we've collaborated on projects together and it's always just like 
so fun to work with Andy. But he brought this little like weird cassette tape Mellotron invention that he had bought. And it's really hard to come by. But his is just one Walkman with like a little MIDI controller. I have no idea how it works. They're really hard to buy because they always sell out. And he had one. And so he like ripped it out of his backpack and did the chorus melody on like a choir patch on this little cassette tape. And it was like perfect. So there was already like this great sonic world happening for that song that felt true to what we were trying to achieve. And then um, Jeremy had also just purchased uh, a new Moog synthesizer. So like, I mean, that's basically on every song on the album because I was just so excited to use a real Moog. I was like, when am I ever going to get to do this again? Track Children contains a solid rhythm section that anchors an effortless mix of elegant strings and sawtooth tones, creating an uplifting atmosphere that seems to counteract the song's wistful lyrics. I always assumed that Children would be on the first side of the record. I never knew that it would be second, but then it did just flow out of when it comes down to it really nicely. I wrote that song and Natalie in the same day. And I was feeling really bummed out because um, Natalie was on tour in Europe and she was very far away. And I'd been reading this book called Healing the Child Within, which is sort of about like addressing your younger self you know, sort of imagining and meditating on a version of your younger self and, uh, uh, you know, telling them that it's okay and that, like, all the trauma and all the things that you've been through in your life are okay. And uh, that's where the chorus comes from. Like, we are only children here yearning to be loved, meaning that, like, any obstacles we have in life are usually just because of this yearning that we have from being kids. Maybe it was, like, neglect from a parent or maybe it was like an abusive teacher you know there's some there's some trauma that is within all of us that we've never really gotten over 
And so that's what that song's about. It's very, it's very uh, literal. All the lyrics that are in the song are just about, you know, the times when you argue with somebody or the times where you're being stubborn. They're all derived from this moment of when you're young and you don't know any better and something, something has not gone the way that it should have gone. And so as long as you can go back in time and forgive yourself, it's okay. And in this instance, it's nice that it's placed early in the record because when you're first with somebody, you're going to have that first argument. And it's not going to be great. And the way that you argue is probably the way that you're going to argue for the majority of your relationship. So, you know, it is kind of a downer of of a lyrical theme, but I wanted to keep it kind of uplifting musically. So I, you know, got the like little pocket orchestra happening on the choruses. And uh, I got my friend Bush Walker to do harmony vocals on that song. And uh, just to keep it kind of up almost like a wistful positivity thing. Mm-hmm. Also knowing that that kind of negativity in a relationship is very temporary if you work at it. So that's what that song's about. Um, and actually, I did play the 12-string guitar solo on that song because I wanted it to feel kind of like Roy Orbison playing a solo. fingers doing this uh 12 string guitar solo but it's in there so the way we arrived at that synth tone is actually that that is not a synthesizer that is my the 12 string being run through some kind of synthesizer but it's not a played synthesizer so i told jeremy i was like it'd be cool if we um you know had some kind of weird tone to go along with the 12 string and then he just like whooped up this weird sawtooth sound and then i was like yeah that's exactly what i wanted i mean again like he's four steps ahead of you always so like if i did something he would know exactly where i was coming from and then he would push it even further it is becoming harder and harder for me to imagine making records without jeremy like seriously because he's so quick and the stuff that he gets is so good i just don't ever want to lose that i mean he's just so talented that is still one of my favorite tunes on the record just because it achieves that sort of like anthemic thing but i also know it's not for everybody the record's strongest vocal performances from Slick, as well as featuring Flamin' Lips multi-instrumentalist Steve Andros on background vocals, 
The track over it is a smooth and funky number with just the right amount of Nilsson Schmilson thrown in for good measure. One of the best parts of uh, this material coming out was connecting with Harry's son. He, he reached out to me on Twitter. He heard the record, which was like crazy. Um, and he saw all the parallels and he, he was keyed on, in on it too. And I was like, okay, I guess you picked up on it, great. This song, yeah, I mean, Nielsen for sure was an influence, but I was also just thinking about making like a weird funk song. So like I was thinking about like Gary Wilson and I was also thinking about like Elton John a lot. Cause like it's funky, but it's also like totally square. Did a demo of the song that was very like almost Bowie Young American style. And then when we brought it into the studio, I just threw a bunch of stuff at it, like a Casio tone marimba patch that's got like all the delay stuff on it. And then Andy laid down this really amazing grand piano counter figure to that. So then there was like a textural thing to work with. And then we had this guy named Matt Combs come in and do like the full orchestral stuff on the bridge section, which blew my mind. And then I was like, okay, I'm gonna just sit with this song for a while. You know, one day I was thinking about it and I was like, it'd be cool if like I had some backup vocals that were not my voice and also not like just a harmony, like having a, a call and response backup vocal. And I was thinking about Stephen Droz from The Flaming Lips and we exchanged numbers a long time ago. We were talking about Krautrock at a festival and we clicked on it. I texted him, I was like, hey, do you want to do backup vocals on this song? And he was like, yeah, I'll do it. Like, not even, like, no fight. Like, yeah, I'll do it. And then, like, two days later, he sends me a Dropbox of those backup vocals. And to me, it completely makes the song. Like, he took the song to a place that I was not capable of thinking of on my own, for sure. I also want to give a shout-out to Todd Bolden, who played bass. I, I mean... Everyone who was involved with the record did an incredible job. I could be saying the same things about anybody who worked on this album because seriously, like everybody who worked on it gave it their 110%. But in that song in particular, Todd Bolden um, came up with those lyrical pushes on the pre-choruses. And I feel like that section really moves now because of Todd. He saw something in the song that I didn't, you know, sort of like Steven, he saw something in the song that I didn't see and then added something to it that exceeded my imagination. So Todd is just, I mean, he's one of my favorite bass players in the world and he's such a sweetheart and he did such a great job on this album. And he's also a drummer primarily. I, I kind of roped him into the album because I knew that we would lock in together. We had done a little bit of touring with uh, an artist named Raylan Baxter, who's great. And uh, I just thought Todd was the perfect choice. Lyrically, I had been struggling for a long time because I was viewing the song as sort of this negative thing. Uh, and then I was like, maybe if I change the, the chorus lyrics to like, how can you not get over it? Meaning like, you know, why is it so hard 
to let go of things in our lives. So why do we always find it to be this challenge, whether it's like a material thing or if it's like a grudge that you have, like it's so foolish. So the song is sort of about the anxieties of knowing that you need to let go of certain things. In this particular instance, maybe it was like I was insecure about a past relationship or insecure about something. It's like, why am I still, why do I even care? You know, it's the, it's the past it's more of a internal question. Like, how do you not, how can you not get over Like to quote Joe Biden, like, come on, man, giving myself a come on, man. Like you get it together. You know, you, you get over, get over it. It's a- Following over it and containing ample amounts of my personal favorite part of the drum kit, the floor tom, is the unintentionally prophetically titled song, Quarantine. One little Easter egg about the record is that every opening of the song almost has like a drum fill into it. The idea was that like you could look at it like chapters in a book, like the fill is what separates the pages. When Over It ends and that drum hit happens in quarantine, that was sort of an intentional like, okay, turn the page. You know, like like how they used to like the, how they used to have in Hooked on Phonic. You know, the little bell would ring. So I never ever ever use the word quarantine or ever the original version of that song i was working on at space bomb in richmond it sort of had this like nine inch nails feel to it it was like really weird techno synths and like this kind of like head like a whole drum beat initially and so i jokingly just exported the mp3 of like the music for it as quarantine because it just sounded like uh, like an alarm was going off or something, or like uh, kind of reminded me of when E.T. is in quarantine. And I didn't think about it. And then a couple weeks later, I was doing a writing session in Nashville at a publishing company. And I just rented a room for a couple of days to work on songs. The chords for the quarantine Nine Inch Nails jam, I started playing them on acoustic. And then it all the lyrics just fell out. It's a song that's like about toxic masculinity. I say in the chorus, quarantine makes them like a disease. What you want me to be is a God in a dream. Meaning that like, as like a man in society, like we're told not to be sensitive. We're told not to be all these things, but it's toxic. And like, it creates toxic environments for everybody around us. So I was trying to make like a cynical turn on it. Like, you know, we should take all the toxic men in the world and quarantine them. So that's what the song is actually about. It's it's not about what we're going through now. It was more just like me being kind of jokey about my own toxicity as a man and like my own problem and airing that out in the song and just being like, God, I'm such a disease. And I was I was even thinking about like Home Alone, like when they say, Kevin, you're such a disease. Like I was I was just playing around with it. 
so I did a demo of it. And then when we went to record it, I was like, okay, I really want it to sound like Peter Gabriel's third record. So we like ran everything through like harmonizers and it sounded really big and it, kind, it still kind of sounded like nine inch nails, like brooding music, dark music. It wasn't working. I was like, fuck this song. I'm not going to do anything with this song. I'm going to throw it away. It's not going to make the record. And I'm glad that I didn't because then I was like, well, what if I look at the song like an Elliot Smith song? Because Elliot Smith kind of, you know, he can have these sort of self-deprecating lyrics about what it means to have masculinity in your life. And he sings it very quietly and then like close mic acoustic guitars. So I cut a version where I just overdubbed everything over the Peter Gabriel version. And that's what we ended up with. And with like the sort of light towel drum kit and uh, really sort of simple bass lines. Todd harmonized with me on the chorus vocally. And um, then Sean Thompson, I told him I wanted like a really chaotic guitar solo for the song. And then he like totally knocked it out of the ballpark. almost like an impossible germany moment like really angular but also just like bursting with energy and melodic but kind of avant-garde like sean just fucking he just man what a grand slam that solo is it, to it totally elevates the song and uh I, I was so happy that he did it and uh then the song was done i mean we didn't really have to think about it after that i was like okay now it's on the record it went from literally like the polar opposite you know I was like, this, fuck this song. And now I'm like, oh man, I love this song. This is great. Alarm, alarm, my fears go on and on. To the army at war with love. And one day the hero and one day the foe. Forgiveness centerpiece of Wiseacre is the unapologetic white boy funk of Closer to Heaven, which greatly exemplifies the strength of this album's track sequence, as if each prior song is there to simply lead up to this moment of pure euphoric release, featuring a sultry vocal performance provided by Slick's wife, Natalie Prass. This track is the perfect makeout song for people that like interesting music, or an ideal choice for principals into indie rock that are tasked with programming the playlist for school dances. Shit. 
you play this song alongside Prass's short court style, then you really will have something. The original version of the song, I did a demo for it when we were on tour, and uh, I wrote out all the music, and I was kind of thinking of like the artist Cornelius when I was writing it. I think the original demo is called like Prince Cornelius. Because the original demo had Lindrum, which was the drum machine that Prince used on all the early records. So I was trying to come up with some combination of those two things, like kind of avant-garde Japanese art and then Prince. And then uh, I, I was really struggling with the lyrics for a long time. And I wrote a bunch of revisions and I just wasn't getting anywhere with it. But I really liked the melody and I really liked the chords and I really liked the, you know, affected drum machine sounding drums. So I sent the song to Scott from Dr. Dog and then he sent back a demo with all those lyrics. So I I did not write the lyrics to Closer to Heaven. It's the one song on the record that is a co-write. But what is weird is that I knew I wanted to write the song about a recurring dream that I had had. I kept having a dream about Dante's Inferno. And when Scott sent me the lyrics and, and the chorus lyrics were closer to heaven, I almost like, I just, like a, my jaw dropped because it was so such a coincidence. Every single one of my chorus lyrics that I came up with had, had nothing to do with that, but it was such a simple distillation. And, you know, Scott has written hundreds of songs. And so he just knows what sounds good lyrically. And so when he sent me that demo back, I was just like, okay, the song's done now and I'm just going to recut it. And Scott texted me. He's like, you know, I think you should run with this song and do something with it, but you should have Natalie sing on it too. Cause I think it'd be really cool. He's like, maybe even Natalie could sing the choruses. And then we tried it, you know, Natalie came into the studio and she sang the choruses and it was just like, okay, now, now it's like, the song has been truly taken to the to the place that it needs to be. But there was the song. It was the song that I was stuck on the longest, as far as like song writing goes. I just could not get the lyrics for it. You know, an important lesson for it was like, oh man, I can collaborate with somebody I work with all the time, and I'm going to collaborate with my my life partner, and it, it's just all going to come together. You know, it just, it just happened very naturally, and I'm so happy with it. The drum kit is an approximation of the Lindrum pattern that I wrote. We ran through a Roland space echo. Again, this is another song where Todd is just crushing it on the bass. Uh, it's not so much guitar heavy, but Andy played like, I think he played like a Wurlitzer on the song. And then we had Matt Combs again. Uh, Matt Combs, unsung hero of, uh, of Nashville, but like he played all of the strings on the record in six hours. Uh, and he sounds like a full orchestra. It's insane that he can do that. It's unbelievable. Then for the solo, I was like, I want the most horrific sounding like purgatory solo. Like you're just stuck in the middle of nowhere and there's no door to get out. And so Andy um, was like, I want to, I'll do the, I'm going to take a crack at this guitar solo. Jeremy had the brilliant idea to get a power supply for the distortion pedal that starved it of its power. So the pedal is actually dying. And Andy did it in one take and it was like absolutely bonkers perfect. So props to Andy for that totally broken guitar solo. 
Natalie was cutting vocals and I was like, can you do like a D'Angelo ah right there? And she was like, yeah. And then she did it and we were all just in the control room like freaking out. We were just like, oh my gosh, this is so good. The buoyant indie pop of Nothing to Lose contains a steady primitive stomp that creates the foundation on which the layers of dreamy guitar licks and synth flourishes help to elevate the song's lively sound. first uh, did the demo of it I was trying to do like a Mo Tucker Velvet Underground thing like very again very floor time heavy and very just like sort of a, a, a weird version of um, you know Phil Spector or something the chorus of that song has existed for years but I never knew what to do with it and it dawned on me that the song was actually about the music industry like I keep on trying to uh, you know put music out and have people care about it. And so I was kind of just like, well, this album, I have nothing to lose. I'm gonna be as self-indulgent as possible and make exactly what I wanna make. And who cares? Because if you can't see it, that's just how it is. You know, it's like, if you can't see that I'm working really hard to make this thing happen, then that's that's your loss. So it was kind of like a, a nice resolve and almost like a confidence building exercise to write this song like I'm going to just write a song about what it means to put yourself out there you have you know I have nothing to lose and you can't see it and then the verses are more about like what it's like living day to day in a world where you feel like you're constantly having to prove yourself and no one cares <laughs> so uh, and then aesthetically I was thinking about it like I said like a uh, John Cale, uh, Lou Reed kind of song, but then also a little bit like the Cass McCombs thing. The melody, the sort of post-chorus melody line, the da -da 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 I don't know where that came from. And I don't know why I did it. Because I almost never do post-chorus melodies. Usually, I go right from a chorus into another verse. But for whatever reason, I just kept uh, playing that melody over and over again on the keyboard when I first wrote the song, and I was like, I'm just going to put it after the chorus because I don't know what to do. And then it just stuck. And I was, actually, I was actually really into the idea of having a break. And then I was also thinking about what it would be like to perform the song live, and like, I never give myself a break when I write songs. And Natalie writes breaks into her songs all the time, like instrumental breaks and bridges and things where she could take a breath. But that's also because she's a singer primarily, so she engineers the songs that way. So that little instrumental break became an engineered part so that it could be an instrumental moment. 
Todd added a chorus harmony vocal to it, uh, it almost took on like a weird, like Grateful Dead thing, which is cool. So that was also a nice surprise. And uh, Sean Thompson added like this weird uh, Mutron guitar. So it's like they're strum chords, but they're not exactly like, they're kind of filtered out through a Mutron pedal. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it added a really nice, tonal bed that i could just kind of let the song coast on for a while and that opens the second side of the record if you were listening to it on a vinyl and so i still got my wish that it is technically an opening song it just happens to open the second side of the vinyl which is sort of like the nighttime you know the the side b is always kind of like the dusk you know through its smart and tight arrangement as well as an extremely catchy earworm of a chorus. The track Kind of Person is a skillfully constructed piece of pop songcraft. That was another one that almost made the chopping block and everyone was like, no, it needs to be on the record. And I think the reason it's on the chopping block is it's the most autobiographical song on the record. It's a song that is about how I was born. I was almost born in a cab. Uh, It's a song about how I used to get bullied. Uh, It's a song about how I used to fall asleep at parties because like, yeah, again, you know, I wanted to go play piano by myself. And it's sort of about like um, being a loner. And then also trying to, exi- you know, when you exist in a relationship with somebody else, how do you reconcile your loner, your more lonerist uh, aspects? So the song is really about just, I'm kind of weird and like, maybe you'll never figure out my more introverted qualities, but like, we're going to try. And we're going to try to reconcile those things so that we can compromise and move forward as a couple. But I did not love that song and it is my least favorite song on the record musically speaking but it has grown on me because i recognize that it's important for it to be there and it also does tell the story it helps the story push along a little bit it's sort of like my last ditch effort on the record to be like oh poor me As we near the end of the record, 
we get the driving, nocturnal pop of Haunted. is a song that is about like okay i'm ready i'm ready to get married i am ready to not be a tortured artist anymore i am ready to like just give up all that stuff so the original chorus was "Ooh, i'm still haunted and i changed it to be i'm not haunted meaning that just you know like i'm not haunted by these demons anymore and i'm I'm ready to fully give myself to this person. And I'm also ready to be a better person in society. <laughs> and I was a little bit worried that that chorus might come off as like a, a humble brag. Like I was a little bit worried that that chorus would seem like I'm not haunted. So like, fuck y'all. You know, that's not my intent. The intent was more to say that like, this is my liberation song. It's still kind of dark in the verses. And like, there's a lot of minor chords, which is unusual for me. Usually I'm a pretty major chord guy. So there's lots of minor chords and lots of like, you know, volume swelled guitars and this sort of like Jerry Rafferty zone, like almost like dark night energy. And I was like, you know, the songwriter in me wants to take the word haunted, which is a cliche word to use, and flip it and make it like, no, 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 I'm not haunted. So that was my way of trying to be clever with the, the cliche. I read this book by an uh, author named Pat Patterson when I was making the record about like how to become a great songwriter. And like, I shit you not, like half of my song titles were in the cliche part of the book. Like, Nothing to Lose is apparently a massive songwriting cliche, which I didn't know. Or, like, like being haunted is a massive cliche. God, I mean, there was so much stuff that I was using lyrically uh, that was considered cliche by him. But then I was like, well, but, if you know, it's not a cliche if you're changing the context of it. There's something that's kind of fun about playing with the idea that, like, fuck it, maybe I'll just make every song a cliche. And that way, you know, I don't have to be so afraid of it. At this point, we're so postmodern as a society. It's like, what's wrong with cliches? Everything's up for grabs. We're living in a practically post-human world, you know, like, let's just dive in, you know?
An ultimate track is the unabashedly sweet Someday. The sincerity of the song's lyrics are enhanced through the track's slightly psychedelic arrangement that includes subtle and dynamic instrumental interplay and a sweeping string section that seems to hover above the sonic space. So Someday was a song that I had a pretty good idea of where it was going right from the get-go. And I wrote the song based off of this famous sonata called the Franck Sonata. Cesar Franck was a French composer. And I really loved the opening chords to that sonata. So that's what the chords of the verse are. I just ripped them right off from this this uh, royalty-free sonata. <laughs> um, and so, but what I thought would be cool is if I took those first two chords from the sonata and almost made like a loop out of it, I wanted the feeling of stopping and starting. I knew that I wanted the song to be about like, Natalie and I were, you know, we're about to get married. I wanted to sort of pledge that like, you know, no matter what, I am by your side. So the chorus lyrics are, even though you'll be gone someday, I know I'll be in the air with you and I know I'll take care of you. So it's just like my way of promising to her that I will do my best. And it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to do my best to be a good husband and also be a good support system and to try to, you know, get out of my own way and listen to you. You know, then it also started to get influenced by like Beck C. Change and David Axelrod and Serge Gainsbourg with the incredible stuff that Max Combs was doing on strings. So I wrote all the string arrangements out myself prior to the record, but with Someday, I told Matt to explore a little bit more. So he added some textural stuff. I think it's just unbelievable. I mean, he really made it feel like a moment. People have reached out to me about that song and they're like, man, this is everything that you like in a nutshell. You know, these sort of big swelling string sections and the drums being very light with like the, the reverb on them and everything. Um, so I was going for that sort of like old Quincy Jones record David Axelrod energy with that song. But I also wanted it to be sweet. 
I wanted it to be sweet, but I also wanted it to be like uh, wistful, but not like somber. I was really trying to avoid somber on this album. I didn't want people to wallow in the album. I think that the world has enough wallowing. We wallow in our sadnesses on any given day. And so I didn't want the music to reflect that. I wanted it to be more like wistful or like melancholy, but not like depressed. And then the ending of that song was super fun because I did not know we were going to pick up the song again. So uh, we ended the song. And then Sean and Andy and Todd looked at me and they're like, no, we gotta keep jamming on this chord progression. So we recorded like a jam and just tapped it and kept it. That's, that is the first take of the song that you hear. Uh, Sean was messing around with the guitar pedal and he was like keep going keep going and then Andy kept going and Todd kept going and I picked up the drums again and I kind of started doing a drum solo on top of it and then um, that big string section at the end we just chopped up all of the strings from earlier in the song and like reversed them Um, Jeremy just placed them at random moments in Pro Tools it was all random and then we heard it back and it was like well that's exactly what we wanted that's like, I, we didn't even know we wanted that, but it just happened. And uh, that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen when you're just recording yourself. You can't engineer a moment like that, really. You're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if a band came back in after the song was already done? It's like, making that happen on your own, is, it's just like, why even try? It's not going to sound the same. There's not going to be that trepidation that then turns into confidence. <laughs> it's just going to be a mess. Wiseacre ends with the track Natalie, featuring a lush, golden age of Disney-esque arrangement. The track's astral-like strings and shimmering harp create the perfect musical backing on which Slick's unwaveringly frank expression of love can flourish.
because I always knew that I wanted Natalie to be the last one on the record. When I realized that someday was going to come before Natalie, I was like, oh man, this is really telling the story of our relationship. And then Natalie being the last song is sort of like our wedding song, where it's like, these are all the things that I'm, that encapsulate how I feel about you. And then I'm promising these things to you in a song. Like I said, I wrote that the same day I wrote Children. I remember sending it off to Natalie uh, when she was over in Europe. She was moved by it. And I knew that if she would be moved by it, then, you know, um, that's all that really mattered. And um, I just wanted to let her know that, you know, I would give her the shirt off my back. (laughs) But, you know, uh, I would do anything for her. And I also wanted to let her know that she is just as much a guide for me in everyday life as anybody that I have cared about, whether it be a family member or a close friend, you know, I wanted her to know that like, I really do care about her opinions and what she has to say. And even though um, there's sometimes when you're not as sensitive to it, or you might just be a little bit going through the motions. Like I wanted her to know that like, no matter what happens, we can always just go back and start over again. It's kind of like that John Lennon song, just like starting over where, you know, he was trying to say that, like, we don't have to engage in the uh, stresses of the material world. We can always return back to this moment of when we did fall in love and how important that was. And we need to honor that. So that's what I was trying to say with that song. And then I always knew I wanted like a Hollywood sort of like La La Land arrangement. And it was also sort of a way of echoing Natalie's song, It Is You, because that's like her Disney song. And I, I was like, oh, it'd be cool if like I ended my record with sort of like my approximation of that. There are trees, there are clouds, many shadows and crowds. There are dreams, There are doubts, there are whispers and shouts And the snow, it formed a crown upon the silver mountain king But there's only one thing that I need So, when I was thinking about who I wanted to arrange for the record I kept, like, yeah, thinking about, like, oh, maybe I'll if like Van Dyke Parks or you know like I, I was just going crazy trying to think of who could do strings and then eventually my manager Rusty was just like just do it yourself just you know like you know how to write for strings so like just do it yourself and so I'm really proud of um, how that song came out string wise because I, I was very nervous that I wasn't going to get it right you know the icing on that cake was um I kept listening to the the song in its completed form and I was like, you know, this is good, but it's missing something that I, I feel like is the sort of uh, fantastical nature of it, you know? And I thought of my friend Mary Lattimore who plays harp. And so I wrote to her and I was like, hey, would you want to like do some harp flourishes on this song? And then she got it back to me in like two hours. She just like sent me that full harp track improvised on top of the orchestral track. And I was like, that is exactly what the song was missing. And I'm so happy that it's here because it adds that really, I wanted it to, the song to feel very beautiful. Um, I don't often write with the intention of writing something beautiful, but like with that song, I wanted it to be delicate 
and I, I kept saying again i kept thinking of old hollywood and i was like what's old hollywood you know big orchestra and like lots of harp when mary added the harp it really really tied the room together for the album art slick collaborates with photographer jason travis i really wanted to do something that was kind of funny but also like my idea of confidence so initially i was looking at uh, these paintings out we were on tour and i was in florida i was at the art museum and i i saw these paintings by sandy Skogland. there were some that were paintings and there were some that were photographs and there was this there was a photograph of like a yellow room with a bunch of wire hangers on pink wire hangers on the wall and i was just so taken with the idea of a room that colorful like yellow wall with hot pink stuff i was like well i know that i want to be in front of a corner or in a room for the cover because I want it to be like this colorful world. And then um, when it came time to do the photo shoot, I was really thinking a lot about like Brian Ferry from Roxy music and like how he's kind of got this crooner thing, but he's also like really fucking weird. Like he's always got his hair slicked back, but then like the music he makes is like super fucking weird. And I was like, that's a fun, that's a fun thing. I'm going to run with that. So I like bought this vintage suit in Santa Cruz and I wanted it to feel like I was like this tropical loser or something. And um, so I got this like mismatched suit with these uh, with my Reeboks, you know. <laughs> and then I knew I wanted to run a smoke machine. So I met up with my friend Jason Travis in L.A. and we rented a room for a while. I didn't even notice this red corner because, again, I was so fixated on the, all the stuff being yellow but then we looked at this corner that was covered in crap and then we just cleared all the crap out of it. And I was like, oh, my God, it's this red corner with like this reflective disco floor. We can shoot a bunch of smoke at the floor. Oh, man, it's going to be perfect. And then I just started like dancing. He put on gin blossoms, which is not what you would think I'd be dancing <laughs> to. And then he got the photo. And initially there was one where I looked like my idea of sexy, which is nobody else's idea of sexy. But then Natalie saw the photos and she was like, oh, that's the one because that one has all this movement. Like the photo looks like it's moving and that's what you want in a cover. Props to Natalie for like always being able to see things that I don't see. And so she saw that and was like, that's that's the cover. And uh, my friend Daryl Norson and I collaborated on the font work. I was like, man, it'd be cool if I could like, get a neon sign that said wiseacre uh but then he just wrote it out in his own handwriting and i had to accept that because of budget or lack thereof <laughs> um so so that's what the artwork means um i just wanted it to feel like kind of romantic but also goofy the album title wiseacre it's the name of uh the place where we got married it's the estate that our friend chuck owned and i texted him and i was like hey i'm thinking about naming my album wiseacre He's like, I'm okay with it, as long as you tell me thank you in the liner notes. <laughs> I was like, gladly. So eventually, I had a conference call with everybody who was working on the record. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, Wiseacre, it's kind of like a double meaning. Like, you know, it's almost like calling the album Wiseass. I'm kind of a Wiseass. And they were like, you know, that's what a Wiseacre is, right? Like, it's like a court jester. It's like a joker. And I was like, oh, God, I named my album after like wise ass. And I didn't even really dawn on me. And I was like, it is so perfect that I did not know that. And the album 
artwork is already done and everything's already off to you know get pressed by the vinyl you know like it's already done i can't undo it this is perfect like this is just such a a beautiful like moment of complete like everyone on the call was laughing hysterically they were like wow you really you had no you really had no idea slick completes work on wiseacre in the late fall of 2019 Unable to find a record label that would be willing to release the album, the decision is made to self-release the record, which Slick does on August 14th, 2020. I uh, would have loved to put it out with somebody, but nobody wanted it. It kept just being so frustrating because I was like, you know, I would have these really promising meetings with labels or promising leads on emails, and uh, it just never materialized into anything you know then we were kind of just like well maybe the record won't come out this year and then the pandemic hit and i had a conversation with my manager and i was like i feel like it will be psychologically bad for me if i don't put this album out (laughs) um because i put so much effort into it and i worked on it for so long and i obsessed over it and i i feel like i worked really hard i just don't feel like waiting another four years to put it out is gonna be good for me psychically and I'm also going to feel like I'm beyond the material. So we decided to put it out through Bandcamp and Bandcamp pressed the vinyl for us. And we could, we did kind of like a GoFundMe type campaign where like we raised money to press the vinyl. We sold out of records before the end of the campaign, which was great. They gave you 30 days to sell the records. We pressed about 300 copies and um, they sold. So it felt like a success, but it's so hard to know because you just think about what would happen if you had that extra support from a label and from a team. And I see all these other records that get put out and how much energy goes into them. And, you know, for me, it's like I have, I'm the one who has to be relentless about it. That can be a little disheartening. You know, there's, there's days when I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing. And then there's days when I'm like, man, it would just be so great to have some help. But I also know that there's pros and cons to everything. And, you know, if this is it for this record, then this is it. You know, I did my best and um, maybe it's a good thing. (laughs) Like there's times when I'm like, if it was really successful, if I was a successful songwriter from a young age, what kind of person would I be now? Uh, I do think about that from time to time. And, uh, you know, it can be a huge bummer to think about or I could be like, well, maybe it's I'm better off. Who knows? I just try to take it a day at a time. And, you know, if somebody did hear Wiseacre at a label and they were moved by it and they were moved enough to want to put out another record, then that would be a a different conversation for a different day. I just feel like now um, I did the best I could. And, you know, the record's out and it's going to have a life of its own. You put your life into something and you want it to be heard by as many people as possible. But um, I also don't think it's worth my time to be petty about it or to be competitive about it. The brain goes there. You know, there's times when I'm like, oh, why does this person have this opportunity, even though, like, I worked harder or whatever. But, like, that's not real. You know, that that's just, like, that's just the ego. That's just the ego getting in the way of everything. So um, I talked with my friend Peter about this record. He's one, he's a good friend of mine out in LA. And he was just like, whatever you do with this album, just make sure that 
you are lighthearted about everything surrounding it. If you start to get dark, it will lessen the impact of what you did. And I thought that that was really good advice. I, it, it is a tough pill to swallow sometimes when I see things that get signed, you know, but it, it's also just how it is. And um, I'm not 21 years old, you know, I'm, I'm 33. And that, that means something very different. So anyway, I, you know, I know that a lot of the people that I care about musically have this path to where it's slow. It's a much more of a slow burn and uh, it unfolds over time. And the people who do find it are grateful that it exists. And that's all you can really hope for. In the poem Dover Beach, the 19th century poet Matthew Arnold, while on his honeymoon, contemplates the loss of faith in God and the implications of such in an increasingly hopeless world. Arnold concludes that in the face of darkness, he chooses to believe in his wife, to believe in their love, because it is through their love that they can survive the near-constant barrage of awfulness that this world has to offer. It's a sentiment I think many of us can currently relate to, which makes Wiseacre's unapologetic expression of joy and love all the more affecting. It really is such a great record, and frankly, I can't wait to hear what Slick does next. And as for his feelings on Wiseacre, Slick is proud of what he and his collaborators were able to create. Feelings overall is that I feel I'm really, I'm extremely happy with it. You know, like everything that you make as an artist, you're going to go back and hear the mistakes later on. And that happened with my first record. You know, like I, I went back and listened to it after I made it and I was like, ah, it sucks. You know, I don't like that. I don't like that. And with this record, I have less of those moments, you know, because I, I know the work that I put into it and the, the care that I put into the details of it. I'm, I'm really happy with it. But I'm also really excited to get better. And I, I just want to make the next thing better than this thing. That's what I'm striving for. I was kind of a late bloomer as a kid and I was a late bloomer as a songwriter so I'm hoping that I get better as I get older. I do not admire people who burn out quickly. I like the idea of longevity in life as much as possible. All of my favorite artists were making their best records in their 50s and 60s. And that's, that's what I aspire to. So I would hate it if Wiseacre was my best record. <laughs> I would actually be really disappointed in myself. <laughs> So right now I'm just in the process of thinking of ways to to make something that is even better. And what does that mean? And how can I make it more meaningful for more people? Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Eric Slick for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Wiseacre and more from Slick on the various streaming platforms or at ericslick.com. It was recently announced that Wiseacre will be reissued on vinyl by Org Music on May 28th, which you can pre-order from Slick's website or at orgmusic.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. 
You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.